Hello. Um, could you imagine being full and remaining full all the time without ever having to eat again? Well, of course, you would die of malnutrition. It would be the ultimate appetite suppression pill. It would be the ultimate uh, bariatric surgery. I had to look that one up. Bariatric surgery is when they, they make your stomach smaller. It would be the ultimate uh, diet regimen. If you were always full and you never had to eat to feel full. Now, imagine this in your soul. The soul is the content, uh, sorry, the soul being content or full all the time. And it sounds like heaven, and it actually is. But however, in time, people feel moments like this, moments that they wish would last longer, moments that come and go, where they truly feel content, and it's really a feeling of fullness in the mind or in the soul. And it's probably the most elusive thing that, that there is. Uh, people, because they look for it all the time, they're buying things or taking things or going places or hooking up with people in the hope that they'll find contentment or fullness. But this is actually offered by God. And the best part is that it's free. Well, I mean, you know, it always takes something, right? There's always a catch. But the catch with God is always a free thing, and it's always an easy thing. It boggles the mind why people don't take advantage of it, but be that as it may, that what God offers this marvelous contentment and fullness is with faith. Those who come to God with faith will be made full. And faith means desire. Do we desire God? God is not offering this by works. He's not asking us to do things. He's asking us to come to Him and by faith be made full. And God speaks of this in one of the most astounding passages in the whole Bible. This amazing and astounding, astounding sentence in the Bible is this. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in Him, being in Christ, you see it's capitalized there, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so, this amazing statement, and this would be a statement that would uh, ignite the world on fire, and in fact ignite the church on fire, and cause many divisions in it, even from the very beginning, uh, would be the fact that deity is in bodily form, and therefore he's God and man. All right, so if we have faith in Christ, we say, okay, we don't really understand the hypostatic union, which is God and man and one person forever, uh, but we definitely agree that Jesus has the fullness of deity. But notice verse 10. Verse 10 is about you, if you're a believer, and in him you have been made complete. The neat thing, so complete, what does this mean, right? Does it mean the Jerry Maguire statement uh, from the famous movie where the, the, uh, the two uh, main actors, an actor and actress, Tom Cruise and Zellweger, they say, you complete me, right? It's, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be complete. 
but that is actually not it. You know, it's not it. It's not in personal relationships with other human beings. It's not in anything else besides, notice again in verse 10, being in Him. In Him, you have been made complete. The one who is full of deity. And complete is a perfect passive. Now, what that means is, the perfect means that it's forever. And the passive means that it's a gift. A perfect passive means a gift forever. And there's no missing pieces. For every believer, being in Christ is all that they need. So, this is a promise to every believer. We receive Christ. He makes us complete. Now, if you've been following along with the lessons uh, lately then you know that we've been studying the fullness of the Spirit or be filled with the Spirit. And this word complete is actually the very same verb. The very same verb that's used for be filled is the verb translated in this passage complete, pleiroo. And it means to be made full. So if we reread the Colossians 2, 9 and 10 with that, actual translation we we read and in him you have been made full and so as i asked would you imagine being made full all the time if it were physically we die but if it were mentally in our souls our hearts our minds then we would be content and please notice here again that it is a gift and it is forever So we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm complete, meaning I'm satisfied in my body, soul, and spirit, or body, mind, and soul, why don't I always feel like it, and why don't I always act like it? Why does the Bible command me to be filled with the Spirit if I'm already filled? Well, there is a piece that's missing, and it's a piece that is an important one, but not absolutely necessary in this life necessary in the life to come, but not absolutely necessary now. If it were absolutely necessary now, God would have given it to us. There is a peace missing, true, but it's not inside, it's outside. Our issue is is that we're still in our old bodies. We have one more step to take as Christians, to be absolutely complete. And it's a crazy thing, it's a crazy thing to imagine that the next step that we have to take to be made complete for all of eternity is death. We have to die or be raptured. But when we're promoted to heaven, our old body is redeemed and a new one is given to us. But until then, we have to control this body. Yeah? We have to control this body. We have to control its impulses, its lusts, its ignorance, its want, its pride, its sin. We have to control it. It's what the Bible calls our flesh. It's not actually just our bodies, but there's things inside of us that are wrong as well. It's called the sin nature, called the flesh. And we have to control it. And if we control it, we will live full, full of God, full of the Spirit in time. And that's why we're commanded to do it now. Because now... Unlike heaven, there is a challenge to it. 
And when we do it, we say, can we do it? Well, of course we can, and we know we can, because God commands us to. God commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And so we learn. This is what it means to come to God in faith. We learn what completed life is, what it looks like. And by our choices, we go for it. We go for that life, which is eternal life. As we learn of it, it is the life of Christ. It is in him, and therefore it is his. It's his life. And by faith, we know that the Holy Spirit filling us will accomplish it. And here's the thing. We can't, well, we can, you know, it's not a casual faith. A lot of people think faith is just a once in a time, once in a while, maybe just on Sundays, maybe when I'm in dire straits or I, I'm really like drowning, say, in life and I need faith for God to pull me out. But that's not going to accomplish this life. We have to really want it. And it's not really want it and then do a bunch of works. We have to really desire it. And that's where faith comes in. Jesus says this. This is the type that lives this way. In Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, it's not hungering and thirsting for food. For righteousness. Jesus promises that those who are like that will be satisfied. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 5, to our main passage, and we'll open up in prayer or continue in prayer, and let's be thankful and grateful for the opportunity to be filled, to be filled with God, to be filled with His Word, to be filled with His life, and to truly uh, self-evaluate today or tonight and, and make sure that our desire for this is solid. Uh, And we can ask God to reveal that to us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing gift that through your Son we have been made complete. But those who have been by faith in Him, made in Him, believing in Him as their Lord and Savior, believing that His work on the cross is what saves us and what delivers us and what forgives us our sins. That we are made complete in Him. It's a perfect, eternal gift. And from that position, Father, that we can fill ourselves now with You, with Your Spirit, We can fill ourselves with Your Word. We can fill ourselves with faith. We can fill ourselves with knowledge, with trust, with obedience. And Father, accept nothing else but life that is You. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a quote for you. First, let's read the passage. Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And uh, the key word here that I'm focusing on is the word dissipation. The Greek word is asetia. It refers to wasting that which is given to you by God. And so Paul here equates being drunk with wine to wasting away that which God has given us. Uh, And that is true. Everybody knows this. 
And that's, in my estimation, that's why Paul uses drunkenness here, is because everybody knows, at least everybody who's old enough, knows that drunkenness is wastefulness. That drunkenness wastes away time, it wastes away life, it wastes away relationships, especially relationship with God. However, it's not just drunkenness that does that. And so, we know here that it is whatever it is that wastes away, and again, this word dissipation is the very description of the prodigal son, uh, anything that we do that wastes away that which God has given us. The contrast to that is to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is not to be filled with drunkenness, but to be filled with all the things that we, well, in our deception, if we feel like getting drunk or want to, and we expect certain positive benefits from it, uh, that the filling of the Spirit will give us that and more. And that, again, shows the relationship that is actually of a similarity. So a quote from Lloyd-Jones, uh, who's a... Anyway, I'll just quote it. Thus, by means of this strange comparison, drunkenness and filling of the Spirit, the Apostle has opened a vista before us and given us a sight of some of the essential glories of the Christian life. No, it is not merely and not only a life of not getting drunk or of not going to the cinema, not smoking, not doing this, that, or the other. You can be clear on all of those matters and still not be a Christian. The Christian is the man who is stimulated by the Holy Spirit. His personality is expanded. He is happy. He is joyful. He is convivial, meaning friendly and enjoyable. He is useful. He is living the most thrilling, exciting life that a man can ever know. And it has all been produced by the Holy Spirit. Nothing else, no one else can produce all of these things and produce them all at the same time. A man with great willpower or a highly moral man can control himself. Yes, but he cannot make himself happy. That is why I have denounced the type of many who is... I'm sorry, that's not many. I have denounced the type of man who is merely moral. The man who gives the impression that Christianity is something depressing and sad. And this is an excellent point that he does make in this very chapter he writes. On any, this is something he writes on Ephesians 5.18, that uh, those who think that Christianity is simply the avoidance of drunkenness or the avoidance of certain things that we're not to do and therefore paints Christianity as something depression, depressing and sad, which what a lot of people miss out on and forget is the fact that the filling of the Spirit gives us many positive things as well as the ability and power to resist the negative things. There are the thou shall not, so the things you shouldn't do. Those are the negative things. But there are the things you should do, like love and comfort and have joy and reach out and have energy and do good work uh, under the will of God. And uh, Lloyd makes a, Lloyd-Jones makes a point of that greatly. <clears throat> but let me also say this to be fair. I denounce equally the type of Christian who tries to produce a false, counterfeit, fictitious cheeriness and breeziness. This is not the Holy Spirit's work. I am referring to those people who put on a kind of glib cheeriness and say, I always show that I am happy because uh, I am a happy man because I am a Christian. 
The effect they always have on me is to make me feel extremely miserable as I see the display of their carnality and their failure to understand the doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit. They try to create it, wear it like a cloak. Then they try to make their meetings bright and cheerful. They are even talking about bright and cheery buildings now. And I looked in my book to see when he wrote this. This was 1974 uh, <clears throat> when he wrote these words. And I imagine what he would have thought of seeing a megachurch in our day and age. Uh, one of the megachurches. They're not all bad, I don't think. So anyway, some even argue that this is an essential evangelistic work. That is drunkenness. That is excess. That is like the effect of alcohol. That is a man trying to produce an appearance of happiness. Uh, Lloyd Jones, I, I think smartly here, I agree with him. I wouldn't agree with everything he writes. He's a strict Calvinist. Uh, but here, I think he hits it right on the mark. That the filling of the Spirit is not just morality. Now, the, anybody in the world who said that I control myself, I never get drunk, I never smoke, I don't go to R-rated movies, I don't dance, you know, those things of old that nobody really holds on to anymore co-ed swimming, <laughs> stuff like that. But, you know, it's I avoid immoral things. But unbelievers can do that. A person who's not a Christian, it doesn't make you a Christian that you can do that, that you can control yourself. Ascetics have done it in other religions. Uh, and But what cannot be done is to actually have joy and happiness that comes from God. The other thing that Jones points out here that is absolutely true is that the Christian who tries to fake this. Right, so the filling of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit within us, gives us actual real life. It's not faked. If I don't have it, go to God in prayer, go to the Bible and God in prayer, and find out why you don't. If you don't have joy, if you don't have self-control, if you lack manners, if you, if you lack things that you know are of the Scripture that every Christian is supposed to be, figure out why, because it is a gift to every one of us. There will be no excuses at the judgment seat of Christ. All of us are called to be this, filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, when Paul writes... Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. After writing this phrase, which is unique in the entire Bible, by the way, this is the only place where anyone is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. It's certainly the only place where Spirit-filledness is compared to drunkenness. It's not the only place where Spirit-filledness is in the presence of uh, you know, people who think people are drunk or so on, but uh, that's, another, that's another point for another time. But uh, after Paul writes this phrase, Paul then writes about relationships. He first writes about brothers and sisters in the church and their relationship to one another and their relationship simultaneously to God. Let's read it, read it in context, it's starting in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's quite a lot here. What is stated, wrapping around this statement to be filled with the Spirit, is to be wise, to be opportunistic with your time, to understand what the will of the Lord is, to not be drunk, to not be foolish, to not be unwise. And I missed the first one, to be careful, which is the uh, Greek word that means to be alert, to be careful and alert, to be filled with the Spirit. And then this relationship of us to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that which is true, that which the heavens sing of, that which is uh, excellent and divine and of love and of virtue, these are the things that we communicate with to uh, in, the, in the medium, that's our communicative medium of which we talk to one another. We don't know silly talk, no unwholesome talk, but that's how we communicate to one another. We have joy in our hearts to the Lord at the same time. And then we serve one another before service. Hold on, I missed one again. Thankfulness. We are thankful to the Lord, thankful to one another, and we serve one another. And notice the phrase, in the fear of Christ. And this is what we're going to talk about in this lesson. What is the reason? I could know that I'm supposed to do all these things. But if I don't have the will to do them, if I don't have the joy in my heart to actually reach out for them, what I mean there is true desire. If I don't have the true desire for these things, I'm not going to go for them. When other things compete for my affection, I'm going to turn my back on these things and choose and reach out for that which is not these things. What is our reason? The fear of Christ is a clue to the very reason why we do this. When Paul again writes, be filled with the Spirit, he turns then to relationships. Us to one another in the church, us to God, us in service of one another in the fear of Christ. Paul then writes about wives and husbands. We've already looked at this. Wives and husbands, starting in 525, or 522, sorry, children and parents, slaves and masters, which takes them to the middle of chapter 6. After speaking of the church and the church's relationship to one another and to God, Paul writes about marriage, wives and husbands, children and parents, family, slaves and masters, which in their economy was an agricultural relationship between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. The working economy. In every case, even with believer and God, there's the possibility of conflict. The possibility of conflict between believers. The possibility of conflict between the believer and God. The believer who is, is really not caring for God, being distracted from God, and is at odds with God. God says, I make war with who? I make war with the proud. That means a conflict. How about in marriage? There is a possibility of great conflict in children and parents, in the family. Conflict. Slaves and masters, same. 
The conflict between people is the main cause of misery on this earth. Again, the conflict between people is the main cause of most of the misery on this earth. The cause of all misery is sin. But when we sin against ourselves, and in certain cases, the ramification of that sin, the suffering of that sin, we take upon ourselves and it doesn't affect someone else, that is not as effective, or I should say as destructive, as when we sin and it causes conflict between people. It is inevitable, however, that our sins will cause conflict between us and others. And when the damage is done between people, it can be on a one-on-one, there's a divorce, or it could be nation against nation and an actual war. There's really not much difference there. It's the same pride, it's the same lust, it's the same desire to have, it's the same lack of love that causes war between two people and between millions of people. So the world has its solutions, does it not? And actually, this is great, because the world has borrowed solutions from the Bible. And that's why I quote, one of the reasons I quoted Lloyd-Jones at the front. Here's what the world does. They say, well, look, how about morality? Why don't we just be good to one another? Right? This is a biblical concept. It's a New Testament concept that, for instance, all men should be created equal. Where does that come from? That's scriptural. So the solution in the world, is it this solution to conflict is that we'll choose morality and or positive thinking. And positive thinking, that's why I use, uh, I picked this mug here of the pictures, you know, somebody can give you a mug and say, think positive. Uh, if you've, I've never taken a self-help course, but I know people have taken courses that are to help you be a better salesman, for instance. And it's all positive thinking. It's, you know, you do this and do that. It's all very positive. You train yourself to think a certain way, which if it works in sales, hey, that's fine. But the solutions available to an unbelieving world, meaning the solutions to man, unregenerate man, to the old self, is moral, first off, on the one hand. Uh, Moral is... You know, I'd like to kill my brother, but I'm not going to do it because it's just going to cause a whole bunch of misery, right? Or, I'd like to kill my brother, but you know what? It's just not right. I mean, I wish I could, but, you know, things you ought to do and ought not to do, and that's definitely one of them. I'd like to steal from my neighbor, but you know what? It's kind of wrong, right? I shouldn't take... I don't want to be taken from, so I'm not going to be taken from them. The world actually very much adopts, at least they say it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They adopt this. As uh, one of the books that I'm reading about uh, right now is about how Christianity, it's a book called Dominion. It's a marvelous book. It goes through the history of the church. It's written by a historian who is not a believer. 
but it's a historian who truly recognizes that the Western world has been completely upended by Christianity. In other words, our laws, the rights that we give each other, the laws that we write, the actual morality that exists in a free nation is all manifestations not of anywhere else but Christianity. And so, we would think, well, therefore, in the West, all the problems should be solved, right? I mean, it was men who were truly influenced by Christianity, including Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't a Christian. He is a deist, but he agreed with Christian principles that he wrote the Declaration of Independence. It was Christian men, for the most part, who put together our Constitution. And they're wonderful documents. They're the best that have ever been written of their kind. The Mayflower Compact that they wrote on the Mayflower before they exited the boat was of a Christian background. All right. Did it take away all the problems? Right? Did it solve everything? Did all the wars go away? And Jesus told us different, didn't he? He was absolutely right. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. And we've seen it come true and continues to be true. So the solution is not morality. And and thank God for morality. If there weren't at least some, we'd be animals at each other's throats in this world. So we thank God for that. But it is not the solution. What about positive thinking? Well, positive thinking is just pretending. And that's what Lloyd-Jones points to at the end of that bit. He says, look, the Christian life is not us pretending to be happy. I say, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be kind and happy. I don't really want to be, but all right, fine. You know, I'm going to fake it. I'm going to put on a happy face. Is that what it is? It's absolutely not. And if you're deceiving yourself concerning that which is real, how will you ever find it? You must know it's real and find it. It's in the Word. It's in the Spirit. It's in you doing that which the Word says to do. And we will find it. Jesus said, follow me and you'll find it. But there's too many who are too busy. They have other things to do. They have no desire for it. They say they do, but as Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. Now, if this positive thinking, the the world uh, adopts this. The positive thinking is that, that you see the pictures, silly pictures I pick, and the morality we know. But have they worked? If they did, now, I'm not talking about Christianity at all, really. I'm just talking about if these two things actually worked in the world, the way the politicians and the leaders and everybody says that they should. You know, the people think that if we just throw out the right laws and tell everybody, hey, just get along, if they'll all do it. Yeah, right. They don't know what man is. Man is selfish. He's a liar. He's self-centered. He's self-seeking. He's self-fill-in-the-blank. If these had worked, divorce would be rare. Divorce is common. If these had worked, there'd be no rebellious children. 
If these had worked, there'd be no abusive parents. If these had worked, there'd be no slave revolts or worker revolts. There'd be no need for a union. Or there'd be no unions at all. My friends at uh, the Freedom Foundation would, uh, well, they'd love that, but then they'd be out of work. (laughs) Uh, There'd be no abusive masters. There'd be no conflict between management and the managed. But they are. And it has always been. Conflict, conflict, conflict. Why do people fight? They're not full. They're not content. You see, if I'm content the way God has made me to be, even if you steal from me, I can actually do what Jesus told me to. You take my coat, here, you take my coat, fine. You take my shirt, fine. I'll give you my coat with it. Go in peace. You hit me, I won't retaliate. Vengeance is the Lord's. What I want for you is your salvation. What I want for you is the same reason that I have to be filled with the Spirit. And that starts with being made brand new. One of the foundational tenets of Christianity is that believers in Christ are brand new creatures. They're not remade. They're not remodeled. They're brand new. We're very privileged to know this. Uh, For those of us who have heard this for years, we almost take it for granted. We never should. It is actually, we're we're inching towards the real reason, which is something that, sadly, in some cases, Christians have said, oh, those are the basic things. Those are the baby things. Those are for children. I only study the more advanced doctrines. And what are the advanced? I don't even know what those are. People tell me, I used to think that I knew them. And then as I studied and studied and studied some more, I realized, actually, I would say with confidence, there's no such thing. I don't think there's anything complex. It's all really made for us quite simple. You know, God calls us sheep and calls us simple and not too many wise, smart, and noble. Why would he give us something complex to unravel? It's not. First and foremost, believers are made brand new. Imagine this. I'm fascinated with it in the book I'm reading because he's writing about, his name's Tom Holland. He wrote a great book. It's called Dominion. Wrote it in, uh, I think it's 2019. It's a very it's recent. And um, <clears throat> he writes about the effect on people even on, on, non, on non-believers who are scratching their heads at Christians going, what is wrong with these people? Like the Romans, see, Rome had, went through a tough time uh, with some inner conflict, and their solution was, you know what, we need everybody to worship the same thing to get them all you know, on the same page. Their decision was to actually create a, you know, a religion that everybody would have to agree upon. They didn't say that you had to lose your your old religion. In other words, if you were from the East or from the West, if you had a different religion, you could hold on to that. But one thing that you had to do was worship the emperor. 
And that was their solution. Because things started to divide a bit. The solution was, everybody has to worship the emperor. And that was to get everybody on the same page. And so, you know, if you worshipped some false god, if you worship Caesar, fine. Whatever. If it keeps the Romans out of my hair, great. But the Christians, they wouldn't do it. Some of them did. But a lot of them wouldn't. And then they were threatened with torture. They were threatened with arrest. They were threatened with death in some cases. And they wouldn't do it. Why is that? You know, just burn some incense to Caesar, bow down and say, I worship you, Caesar, and then get up and go about your business. The Romans couldn't understand them. Just couldn't understand them. Why is this true? It took the world by storm. And that's why the world was changed. Because individual believers are changed. We are made brand new in Christ. That's the gospel. It's part of the gospel. One of the basic tenets of Christianity, that when you believed in Christ as your Savior, you were crucified with Him in your old self, and your new self was made alive, resurrected with Him. And to this new creature, the old, right? So I've got a picture for you, right? We're resurrected. But what about the old solutions? These, are we still after this? Is that what God, God gives us commands to be smart? He does. God gives us commands to be happy. He does. But He gives us a reason, doesn't He? Yeah, in Ephesians, where do the commands start? Now, all right, I'll fill it in for you. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not a hook. Where do the commands start? Where does Paul finally start in this amazing book to say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4.1? Right at the start of Ephesians 4, here comes the life. What did he do in the first three chapters? It's not, I think there's one command in the whole three chapters. He doesn't talk about anything about how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, what we are supposed to do, what, you know, what this great life is that we're uh, accountable to. He doesn't talk about it at all. In the first three chapters, what he talks about is the gospel. Three chapters. All the ramifications of the gospel. Everything that happens to you when you believed in Christ as your Savior. That's what he speaks about for three chapters. And you see, when the world adopts be smart, and they throw out the first three chapters, they have no reason to be smart than pride. They want peace on earth. Whatever. There's no real reason. Why should you be happy? That's a great question. You should be able to fill in the blank. So now that we're new creatures, get back to our resurrection picture, when Christ walked out of that tomb, right? it was the same body that went in, but it was new. Right then started the new. 
Right? Didn't he say, behold, I make all things new? Uh, if you see, uh, just a couple nights ago, I saw the episode 8. The la- I think it's the last one in the season of The Chosen for season 3. Episode 8. It's, it blew me away. What a job they did. I know. I'm <laughs> at the at the end in the credits they show that they list every name who's contributed to them for this season. If you contributed your name would have been on there. There were there had to be tens of thousands of names that they all they just rolled through them real fast in the credits. Um the the production they put together to display it I'm not I don't want to give it away if you haven't seen it. Uh you know, it's an aspect of the gospel. You know these things happen. But if you if you want to watch the episode, the the anticipation of what is going to happen, and to be able to see it on a screen, it's never been depicted like this before. I think this this program, and I know there are people out there who say, oh, I think it's Mormon and blah blah blah. I haven't seen anything truly doctrinally wrong with it. Maybe there is, and I missed it. But they they talk about faith, they talk about salvation, they talk about it. It's, it seems all right there that the gospel is solid. But no production's ever been done like this, and it, it's so prevalent that we saw an advertisement for it on an actual real channel. I forget what it was. It was on CBS or something when I was watching a football game that there was an ad for it. I've seen it in, in um, I think, what magazine, The Economist, which is a worldwide magazine. It's a very popular magazine. They had an article written about this, and the, the person writing the article, you know, said they they couldn't understand. They were they were writing about this show that has taken the world by storm. The way they were writing it was like, we don't understand how this happened. This is a story about Jesus. We don't know why people are watching it. Because they're secular atheists who don't get it. I shouldn't laugh at that. But anyway. What's revealed in the Gospels, in Christ, what he's done, what it cost him. An honest to goodness, flesh and blood man who was the fullness of deity. Set us free from this world, from sin, and from the flesh. And those solutions, they're not for us anymore. We're no longer of this world. They didn't work anyway, right? So we don't want them. Now, we have a new solution. What is the solution? To be filled with the Spirit. This is our solution. Nothing happens in our lives that is spiritual without this. It is the Spirit in us that makes it all possible. I haven't gotten into, you know, the the question of how you get filled with the Spirit. I've been touching on it a bit. But the reason why I haven't is because the Bible doesn't clearly spell it out for us in some kind of procedure. We're just told to do it. What intrigues me is the other places in the Scripture that tell us to be filled. In Ephesians itself, to be filled with the Father, to be filled with the Son, in the knowledge of the Son, and to be filled with the Spirit. All three are actually, we're told to be 
filled, we're not commanded about the others, we're commanded about the filling of the Spirit. But in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, we're to be filled with love. In Ephesians 4.13, we're to be filled to the fullness of Christ. We're exhorted to. So, imagine this, that you were filled with the Spirit, but you weren't filled with truth. Would that go hand in hand? Of course they wouldn't. If my heart is filled with lies, I'm not filled with the Spirit. Spirit has nothing to do with that. So, filled with truth, and I would say what you know so far, none of us know it all, but filled with truth, filled with humility, filled with trust, filled with obedience, the believer will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian filled with the Spirit is filled with truth. And this is where we get kind of in a conundrum here. And, you know, if, uh, if there's something you disagree with, fine. But it's, you know, we get in a conundrum. We say, well, wait a minute. We're to be filled with truth and then filled with the Spirit or filled with the Spirit first and then filled with truth. Can you be filled with God if you're not filled with His truth? Can you be filled with God if you're not filled with humility? I say, I'm a little bit humble. That's not what God wants. You know, I, I used to have these arguments with myself, I guess, back in the day, which makes me laugh. Uh, because, you know, I was trying to live two lives. You know, trying to live a fleshly life and a spiritual life. It, it's exactly what the Corinthians did. Right? It's what Gnostics, Gnosticism is all about. That we, you know, we have a little bit of God. We have a little bit of world. We have half God, half world, half spirit, half flesh. Can we do this? Jesus said, look, you can't serve two masters. Don't even try. Will you be filled with the Spirit if you're not filled with obedience? What is the opposite of obedience? Disobedience. Well, can I have something in the middle? Like I'm kind of obedient? I guess you could be. But you're going to be obedient sometimes and disobedient at others. But if you're going to be filled with God, you have to be filled. To the capacity that you can. Being willing to do His will. Uh, and John uh, Walvrood, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary back in the day, he's home with the Lord now, he writes an excellent book on the, on the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And a word that he uses a lot for, for filling is yielding. I remember Colonel. I remember Colonel Thieve teaching about how he hated the word yielding, uh, and that I, you know, uh, like many of us here, we're very influenced by that teaching. But you know, I don't. I actually love the word yielding. And Lewis Berry Schaefer uses it as well in his work, He That Is Spiritual, um, and I've read through them both. And they even even within Walvrood, Schaefer, Theme, and others, there's slight differences. Some talk about complete commitment. Some talk about confess. Almost all of them talk about confessing sin, which I do as well. And uh, and we'll talk about here that here in a minute. Uh, but again, filled with truth, you know, you've got to be filled. You can't be filled with sin and be filled with Him. You, you, you mean you can't be? To sin is to grieve the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 4.30. So to be filled with these, truth, humility, trust, obedience. I've got to have faith. If I don't have faith, I'm walking in sin. I've got to be humble. If I'm not humble, what am I? I'm proud. God does what with the proud? 
not fill them. I'm filled with truth, humility, trust, obedience. And why did I pick these? Are they the only thing that has to do with the filling of the Spirit? No. But they're the things that we have to do. Right? The fruit of the Spirit I cannot produce. I cannot make myself happy. Ah, oh, man, what a revelation that is. Talk about freeing the mind and, and having a, a big step closer to contentment. I cannot make myself happy. Only God can. What I can do is obey. And you know what God can't do? Force me to obey. He's not going to do it for me. I mean, if God forced me to obey, I'd stop being human. God can force a storm to stop. He can force an animal to do something. He cannot. If man is in his image, and he is, man and woman, he cannot force man to obey. He cannot force man to be humble. It was his true desire for Israel, and they weren't. Man cannot for, uh, sorry, God cannot force man to love. Love, obedience, accumulating truth, God cannot force us to learn. He can help us, He can motivate us, He can nudge us, He can make our lives very painful. But we can still resist. He's not going to force us to do it. He can't force us to do it. If He does, we're no longer in His image. So, truth, humility, trust, and obedience. Those are the things that I control. Those are the things that I must do. So, we wonder, where is confession? Because I haven't put it here. But that's it's still coming. Where is confession in this? Confession is when any of these are not in your soul. And by the way, take out one and the rest of them go too. I say I have truth, but I have no humility. You don't have truth, bro. You don't have it. You may have knowledge in here, but if you're proud, you know nothing of it. In the moments that I'm proud, can I really use God's truth to my advantage or in, in the situation? I cannot. I say I have obedience, but I have no humility. Those things are at odds with one another. You do not. I say I have, I don't really trust, but I have truth. <laughs> you know, whatever. Take any of them out. The rest of them go. When one of them is gone, meaning all of them are gone, you have sinned, or you are sinning. And therein lies your confession. Confess the sin or sins and then restore these. Right? I, I like it. What about confession without restoration? That's me going to my neighbor, stealing his stuff, showing it to him and saying, I confess I stole this, and then taking it with me without a repentance, without a, you know what, I stole this and I'm going to give it back. I'm going to restore myself to not being a criminal. So you see what I mean. Confession is empty if I don't restore my soul. And why can I confess just like Jesus says it right in the prayer, forgive us our debts 
Because why? We know we're forgiven. As we forgive our debtors. Forgive us, Father, because we know we're forgiven. All right. <clears throat> so we have all of these. We know when we mess up at this, and we do, we know we're forgiven. And so we can confess, we can restore, and then we can get back to the status. The status of being filled. And when I'm filled, I can take God's Word, take God's truth, and I can truly solve problems unlike the world can. Why? I'm a new creature. I'm made for this. This is what we're going to do on Sunday. On Sunday, we're going to look at the Spirit in one chapter of the Bible. And he is, I think he's in there 13 times. I think 13, might be 11. I know it's a lot. I forget the number. In Romans chapter 8, the Spirit's all over it. And we're going to look, just one class, very, very roughly in a main theme kind of thing, that we're going to look at the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. It's so good. And when, with, on top of, if you've listened to this and then you listen to that, you're going to say to yourself, you know what? These things, I need them to be full. If not, as Jesus said, I can hunger and thirst for righteousness, but do I really thirst for it? See, that's the path to righteousness. But is it enough that I know that I need that. Right? And there are a lot of people who know that they need to do things, yet they don't do them. Why don't they do them? People need to know they need to change things in their lives or add things to their lives or take away things from their lives, and they don't do it at all. They know it. It's very clear. It's for the same reason that back when the, you know, with the positive thinking or the moral movement that we know that we shouldn't go to war. We know that war is hell. We know that war is 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 terrible and dark and yet here we are as a nation we're involved in another one and another one and another one and another one and we know better but why is why don't we why don't we stop and for the same reason now just because we're born again and saved in new creatures and because we know that we need that that we can still not do it and that, that connection is because we need a reason. Yeah? You and I need a reason. Yeah, I, could, I know I have to get up every morning. But we all know the, the phrase, there's a reason I got out of bed this morning. I need a reason. A reason is a motivation. A reason is a real desire. Knowing this, knowing I'm a believer, knowing this has to be true about me does not remove me from all danger of not living it. And being caught up by Satan in temptation and desires and wasting. Don't be drunk with wine. That's a waste of time. And wasting my life. So we have to put them all together and not forget each one, trust, obedience. And then say to myself, well, am I really going to perform all of this 
Am I really going to truly take the heights of the spiritual life like God would be pleased that I would? And so we need a real reason. And I put desire in small letters on purpose. I thought it looked good, right? Because desire, what did Christ say about faith? How much faith do you need? Mustard seed. It's, it's, it's a small seed. It's not the smallest that there ever was, but it's a small seed. And it grows much bigger. All, if your faith is in the right thing, if your faith is in the right place, if your desire, as small as it is, is pointed in the right direction, it's not going to... See, the point about the mustard seed is that it's not going to stay small. It's just that the mustard seed represents faith in that, that in which your faith should be. And it's not going to remain small. It's going to grow. And so we need real desire. <laughs> What's our real desire? What is our real desire? What is it that's going to make you do all of this? Well, I almost want to leave that as a cliffhanger, but if you have the notes in front of you, you can just read ahead. And, uh, I don't want to do a cliffhanger for two days. Not that, and, and perhaps you should know, and we all should know, but you know, when we're asked something like that, we think of, wow, this is a very complex question, isn't it? Human desire is incredibly complex. Nobody understands the human brain. You know, what makes me do what I do? Uh, as God says of us, we... We do things that make no sense. Meaning, as fallen man, we don't even know why we do what we do. But when it comes to needing a reason, a reason which is a true desire, and it's not just, well, I should be moral. I know I should. It's like, imagine Cain not killing his brother. But yet he wanted to kill him so bad. Actually, he had the knife ready to come down. He was like, you know what? This is wrong. Would that make Cain right? No. Would it make him righteous? No. Would it just make him have a little tad of morality in him? <clears throat> the real reason is the gospel. The real reason is the gospel. Now, if any of us thinks that's too simple, then we don't know enough about the gospel. Gospel is the Greek word euangelos, and euangelos means good news. You know, as I said prior, Paul wrote three chapters, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, about the gospel. We're not told to do anything in the Scripture without the putting forth of some aspect or every aspect of the gospel. Now, how many times when the writers of the New Testament in their epistles, they write, therefore, do this, therefore, do that. What was the therefore, therefore? It's always the gospel. When Paul told the Corinthians, you need to change, what was his motivating thought? The gospel. And the gospel has so much in it, so much about what we are in Christ. What we are is new. What we are now 
as beings who are the new humanity, who have eternal life, who are indwelt by God, who are indwelt by the Spirit. All of these things are true because of the Gospel. And when we believed in the Gospel, all of those things became true of us. It is who we are that motivates us. That is the reason. Why should I be filled with the Spirit? Well, so I could be smart, so I could be bright, so I could be happy, all these reasons about me. They're not going to get you there. They're not not enough. What is enough is the gospel. And uh, we'll expand on that come Sunday. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord who through His incredible sacrifice and His willingness to be judged for all of our sins, to be separated from You, Father, in judgment and to die so that we could live. He became poor so we could become rich. He carried His cross so that we could carry ours. He was resurrected so that we could be resurrected. He came and sought those who were lost and He saved us, making us sons of the living God, who is You. Father, these are the things that make us know that this life is what we must live. There is no other choice. There are no other solutions. There is no other way, no other path besides this one, the one marked eternal life. Show us, Father, that through this, to be filled with all the things that are good, so that we are filled with the Spirit, filled with You, and filled with all else. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Tell us why.